Well, church, I really, really hope that you have your Bible with you because we're in for a doozy. And if you often say, I attend a church that doesn't skip anything in their Bibles, but yet they actually do skip things, then you can't say that because this morning, if you're going to skip a passage, this is the passage you would skip. Because if you're going to teach every word that God has to say, then there's going to be Sundays you're going to come to church and the passages are going to be hard. And you're going to come to church and the passages are going to be passages you might not like. And the passages are going to evoke all sorts of emotion within you. Passages that are going to fly in the face of culture. Passages that lead people to cancel you or label you. This morning is going to be tough. And so let's start in prayer. Father in heaven, may the words that come out of my mouth be clear. May they be true. May they be honoring to you. May they be taught with clarity and humility. And may our hearts hear beyond the words. Holy Spirit, we invite you to have your way in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you got your Bible this morning, if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Turn to the very first page of your Bible. Pretty easy to find. This says we're starting there. We're going to cover the whole thing. No, that's not true. Genesis chapter 1, I want you to look there. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God... That's the very first words of your Bible. In the beginning, God. I bet you knew that, and I bet you even had that memorized. See, you have at least one Bible verse memorized. In the beginning, God. And in saying this, the Bible begins with a very clear understanding, or perhaps a clarification, of who is running things and who is not. It doesn't say, in the beginning, God and his boy, Kevin. Doesn't say that. Nope. There is clarity of the creator versus the created. It says, in the beginning, God created. And what did he create? He created the heavens and the earth. And so we didn't evolve. We're not an accident. We did not manipulate our way from some sort of primordial ooze through some transitional form to who we are today. Your Bible says we are created. And so if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings so that they are like us. Let them rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the sky. Let them rule over the livestock and all the wild animals. Let them rule over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own likeness. He created them to be like himself. He created them as male and female. Those two words are hot buttons in our culture right now, male and female. Our society says that we get to choose our gender or that we can make up our own. But here, according to the word of God, he created us either male 
or female. He created two genders, not 76 as our culture currently says. Why? Because these two genders, male and female, are like him. That's what it says. And let's pause on that topic for a moment because we're going to offend all morning. Because I think there's something else for us here. And this is very, very significant that when God creates male and female, he creates them as distinct from and unique from one another. That male is distinct from and unique from the female and vice versa. And if you turn your page to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord speaks everything into existence, and yet it says of Adam that God took the dust of the earth and he breathed into it life. The word breath is the Hebrew word ruah. Can you say ruah? Okay, don't say it like Americans, ruah. All right, you know, there's a, there's a ha huh at the end because it's Hebrew, you know, so we've got to have ruah right? That's how it's said at the end. And what that means is, it means the breath of God, the, the wind of God, the spirit of God. And he breathes his ruah into Adam to animate his life. And yet it says in verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Interesting thing about the word helper, it's actually a name of God. And the name of God is given to females, there's no name of God in all of Scripture that's given to a male, but there is one that is given to a female. And what I talk about this when I do premarital counseling with engaged couples, it seems to imply in this passage that the female can be all that she was meant to be without him. But it also seems to imply for some reason he cannot be all that he was meant to be without her. But look at verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. They don't become 50-50 partners. It says they become one flesh. For those of you who are raising boys, you are raising boys to become men. And one day, those boys step outside of your covering, according to Scripture, right here, and they become men of their own. And in that, they take on their shoulders the mantle of responsibility for the leadership of their life, and one day, leadership of a spouse, and one day, leadership of a family. And for daughters, biblically, there is a difference. Daughters stay under the headship of mom and dad, submitting to the father, and then one day getting married and transferring that submission before God to a husband. And now, before some of you lose your mind at me, this is God's original design. This is not Kevin's preference. I'm trying to show you in Scripture God's design. This is God's pre-fall Genesis chapter 2 design. He has a design. And so hang in there and don't stop listening yet because this design, it's not done. Because then comes Genesis chapter 3, and that's where the wheels fall off, right? <laughs> that's where the wheels fall off. And what happens is the serpent comes to Eve in verse 1, and it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the fruit, the fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And so Satan begins to seduce the woman to believe that she should listen to feelings as opposed to the revealed word of God. By the way, when sin comes into our world, even today, if you trace it back, and when you do, you're going to find that you have pursued feelings and not God's word. That's where sin originates. It's when we set aside God's word and we do what we think feels right. And I would argue that Satan is going to challenge for very specific things in Genesis chapter 3, all of which have implications for where we're going in 1 Timothy. First, Satan challenges God's word. That's what he does. And then he's going to challenge God's justice. And then Satan is going to challenge God's love. And probably most significantly for our context in 1 Timothy is that Satan challenges God's design. And what Satan says to Adam and Eve is, you do not need to live according to God's archaic design. You can reject his design and you can enjoy real life. You can enjoy the good life, a life outside of God's design, and it's no big deal. He does not need to be your Lord. He only needs to be your consultant. Because you are in charge of you. No one should be able to tell you anything about you. He's your consultant. Because the Lord makes the rules. And so that's what they choose. Adam stands right next to Eve, not saying a word, following right along in her sin. And so the consequences of this sin is that the role of men and women from Genesis chapter 3 forward are distorted. They're not dismissed. They're distorted. Men begin to reject God's design of godly servant leadership and begin to lean towards one of two extremes. Men either become passive and they become relationally and spiritually docile or they become domineering and authoritarian, neither of which is biblical. But that's not all. Women also reject God's design. Their role is distorted, and in doing so, they move towards autonomy. They move towards self-sufficiency, not only apart from God, but apart from any male leadership in their life. And what happens is, the consequences of the fall affect the rest of your Bible. That's why when you're reading your Bible, especially in the Old Testament, I'm reading right now through with a lot of, whole bunch of guys are in the Old Testament right now, and it seems like every week we look at one another and go, how is it possible that people could treat one another like that? Welcome to the fall. They treat each other like that because of the fall. And it's all the way through until you get to the New Testament and you see the work of this thing called the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of Jesus now making our hearts new that we would live back in the design that God originally intended without the calamity of the fall. That we would be made whole again through the renewing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit 
and the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so Ephesians chapter 5 speaks of male and female being in mutual subjection to the Lord. That male and females are in mutual subjection to the Lord. Verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So male and female should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what it says. Verse 22 then says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And so you begin to see this beautiful picture of what, of what the roles were meant to be. Male servant leadership and female submission with that word submission defined biblically. Not defined culturally, not defined politically, defined biblically. Culturally, you say submission. I mean, I have a daughter. I'm raising a daughter. I want a strong, godly, independent woman. And so do you. So just to be clear, submission does not mean doormat. All the men should have just said amen because you do not want a daughter that's a doormat. I also want her to submit, though, to God and to her father and one day to her husband. Why? Because that's biblical. It doesn't mean she loses her opinion. It doesn't mean she loses her voice. It doesn't mean she loses her thoughts. It means she operates in God's design. Ladies, you can be both strong and submit to your husbands because if a husband is worth his weight in salt, he's loving you like Christ loved the church. And he's listening to your voice, and your voice matters to him more than any voice in the entire world other than the Holy Spirit. And that's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. That's sacrificial love for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Can you imagine husbands like that? What would that look like? Right? What would it look like? Can you imagine what our church, what the church today would look like if men did that? So which is harder? That or submission? I'm not so sure yet. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word or are disobedient to the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Welcome to this dance of a New Testament marriage a recreated, gospel-centered marriage within God's designed roles. So now, flip over to 1 Timothy. Let's navigate to where we're going. Actually, I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I know we're not there yet, but I want you to see Paul's purpose for this entire book. He actually doesn't hold back. He tells us why he's writing this book in the first place. That's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. That's what it says. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, 
you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's the why behind this book, and that's the why behind this whole series called House Rules. That's what Paul is doing. And if you remember last week, the first call was to men. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Pastor Alex preached on that last week. It says, therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. And so the men were to lead out in their families. The men were to lead out in the church. And the raising of hands is less about the physical posture of our bodies and the physical posture of our arms and more about the posture of our hearts. Because the idea is, if you can raise your hands to God, it shows a submission of, God, I need you. God, I worship you and not me. You, it's about you. You are the creator, and I'm the created. And so what Paul started saying last week, and will continue to say this week, is that God, by his grace and according to his design, has called us men to lovingly, humbly, and with deference to Christ, to lead. And this is a critical, critical place to start before we get to the role of women. Why? Because men, if we are not doing what God has called us to do, it makes it very, very hard for her to do what God called her to do. And so now comes verse 19, uh, verse 9, sorry, and the fireworks begin. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adoring themselves not with elaborate hairstyles of, or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Wow. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So the pastors drew straws. <laughs> <laughs> you want to guess who lost? <laughs> right? So verse 9, this is what it says. It starts with, I also. That's what it says. I also. Do you see that? This means it connects to the context of verse 8, where the posture of the men's heart humbly submitted to God is demonstrated by the external raising of hands. It reflects what's inside. Likewise, in showing, or also, in showing a humility of the heart, ladies, it speaks of dressing modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. What it means is promoting a lifestyle of propriety and godliness. It's similar to the raising of hands, not being the ultimate point. So it's not saying your braids are evil right? Your gold chains are evil. It's saying if your obsession is with your braids and your gold chains and your fashion and your clothing or whatever, if that's what you're focused on, Paul's saying you're focused on the wrong things. You're focused on external beauty 
only. You're focused on external beauty at the expense of your internal beauty. But what Paul says in verse 10 is that there's actually something more beautiful than who you are on the outside. Paul says, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. See, these passages don't address as much of the what as they do the why. So Paul is not condemning external beauty. I think some churches take this way too far, and they're like, okay, uh, ladies, no makeup, skirts to the floor, can't see your ankles, no, no, pants is better. So show up in pants, that's what we're going to do, and so on. That's not necessarily what he's saying. What Paul is saying is, ladies, you're going to put a lot of attention and care into how you look. That's not necessarily a bad thing. As long as you're putting even more attention and care into who you're becoming. Who you look like on the outside is fine, but who you're becoming on the inside is even more important. That's where your beauty is found. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3. Your beauty should not come from the outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way of the holy women of the past who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. And if we're honest today, talking about all of this in our culture today is very, very difficult because we live in a world, and you know it as well as I do, we live in a world that, that values external beauty. I would say it celebrates it. I would say it worships it, it venerates it, and I would go so far as to say our culture idolizes it. Like the beauty industry is a beast. I mean, if you're going to invest your money right now, invest in Botox right? Because everywhere I look, that's what they're talking about. Because there's a hunger by our women and a cultural call on our women to look and stay young as long as possible. And what Paul is pushing on and, 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 and saying here is that the amount of energy and effort that it takes to stay up with whatever's next, the energy and the money and the effort to keep up with the fashion trends, to stay current with the styles, to get your hair or your nails done, the pressure is just enormous on our women. And for many women today, you be can begin to feel that age is a bad thing. And what Paul is saying is, that it actually shouldn't be this way in the church. It might be that way out there. It should not be that way in the church. We can't influence necessarily the entirety of culture, perhaps. But remember, this book is written about how we are to conduct ourselves in here. And what Paul is saying is that in here, there needs to be a celebration of not just what's on the outside are you celebrating what's on the inside as well? And girls, if you want to put on makeup or get your hair done or get your nails done, there's no condemnation against that. It's saying you just don't do that, though, at the neglect of what's going on inside of you. Don't neglect that. 
Paul says instead of focusing on that, spend your energy, your time, your effort cultivating internal beauty, delighting in the Lord, enjoying his presence, serving, giving, mentoring, discipling, because the richness of reward that comes from that far surpasses the reward from any of that other stuff. But here's the uncomfortable truth for men now. If you're a man who takes that creepy first look, you know what I mean. Maybe you take that creepy second look. For some of you, a third. Or if pornography is an issue for you guys, you're going to make it very, very difficult for her not to fight for external beauty. Because she's already struggling when she goes to the grocery store and she looks at the magazine covers in the checkout line because everybody on those magazine covers are beautiful. They don't put people on magazine covers who have a normal life. Everyone on the covers are airbrushed. They have yoga instructors. They have nutritionists. And on and on it goes. And here comes your wife dealing with two kids running on two hours of sleep, wiping throw-up off her shirt for the second time today. She's already changed one poopy diaper at the store. She stretched to the end. And you should be grateful that they made it there and got home without someone dying. And she's doing that all on top of working all day long. And she's looking at that magazine cover. And if she knows, you're looking at that when she's not around it'll be very very difficult for her because men one of the greatest gifts you can give her is just only have eyes for your bride there's a song about that I only have eyes for you Now, starting in verse 11 is the reason why we have the chairs tied down this morning so no one can throw them at me. (laughs) Verse, Verse 11 says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. So this will be the most cancelable message that I think I've ever given. But but before you do, let's ask the question, what does that mean? Because it's very important that we understand the context because otherwise that sounds incredibly demeaning. See, in the Roman world, ladies, you had one shot to rise in society. You hitched your wagon to an upwardly mobile man, and you just hung on. And and, and by the way, he might have been 30 years your senior. And women in that culture, they, they didn't go to school, and they weren't educated. They were married at the age of 13 or 14, and as soon as they had their first period, they were betrothed and married. Their job was to please their husbands and to have babies, period. That was it. And so the idea of education was not even a part of this culture. Now, there were a few wealthy women who might have had enough resources to to bring in a a mentor or have a tutor or have a person come in and maybe lecture at dinner, but to actually get educated, to actually receive instruction was unheard of in the Roman world. So look at that passage again. Not only is Paul inviting women into the room to learn, Paul is actually issuing a command. Grammatically, It is an imperative command. He's saying, ladies who are in Jesus, you had better come. 
You need to hear the word of God. You need to grow. You need to be educated. You need to mature. He's urging them to come that they might grow in godliness. But then we hear words like submission and, and quietness, and, and we think those are demeaning as well. But to listen or to learn or to receive instruction in silence is actually a positive trait of a learner. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 says, The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. This text is not demeaning. This verse is in no way belittling to women. It's an invitation to an uneducated group of Roman Christians to say, Ladies, you need to get here so we can train you in what God's word says. Now, it does assume something, though. It assumes that the function of teaching in the assembled gathering, in the assembled church, in, in this gathered assembly, is set aside for men. Now to be clear, it's not due to a difference of worth or, or value or dignity, because that would be to degrade the very nature of creation of men and women in the image of God. So it is not due to intelligence, or skill set, or ability, or gifting. It's not about that at all. It's about God's design. God intended marriage to function in a certain way. He intended his local church to function in a certain way, in a way that mirrors marriage. And Paul says when this is done, a woman who is willing to receive instruction not only honors God's design for men and women, but she will find joy in the process. And it's almost like Paul knew this was going to be a hot topic, and so he further clarifies, if you want to call it that, his point in verse 12. However, in many ways, this verse has driven scholars mad for centuries, because this is the most controversial text in this whole book, and I get to preach it. Because this is so culturally unpopular right now. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So receiving instruction in silence or quietness bookends verse 11 and 12. And so again, this passage does assume that the teaching function, and now added here, the exercising of spiritual authority are set aside for men. Now, this is not without disagreement. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you the disagreements that people have over this text, and you have to begin to decide what you think makes sense. Because the very first argument here is that in verse 12 it says, I do not allow or permit a woman to teach. So the argument against this passage is, that is a present tense verb. They use a, a grammar argument. It's a present tense verb, which means it applied then, but it doesn't apply today. That's the argument that's made. And the thought process in this argument is, look, society's come a long way since then. That's a wee bit archaic. Those were rules just for that day. That's why it's present tense. So those rules are just for that day, and now today we've kind of moved beyond that. You've probably heard some of these arguments before, but here's the potential problem with this thought process. There are over 100 present tense verbs just in 1 Timothy. So, if present tense verbs no longer apply today, 
then apparently God no longer desires for all people to be saved. Men no longer need to pray. Elders no longer need to manage their households. They no longer need to keep their children under control. They no longer need to have a good reputation with those outside of the church because that's all that day and not today. And on and on it goes. So that certainly doesn't seem to be correct logic because you have to interpret Scripture consistently. The second argument is that some people are like, yeah, 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 but this was Ephesus, Kevin, and that place is buckwild crazy. I mean, it's like Vegas, right, or the Decapolis. They were crazy out there, and so this teaching is unique to the city of Ephesus. Now, there's no denying that Ephesus was a mess. They did worship the fertility god Artemis. They had prostitution happening during the worship services as they worshiped all sorts of Roman deities. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It was a little bit of a spiritual free-for-all out there. This was a place that was big. It was super influential. But the problem with assuming that this was only for Ephesus is it doesn't explain then why Paul has similar words to other churches like 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church, assuming speaking means to teach or to interpret the teaching. So ladies, it's not that you're not allowed to say a word like, okay, when you're in church, cover your face, cover your mouth, shh. Don't talk to anybody, have no friendships. That's not what it's saying here. That's not what they're after. The ladies had all sorts of questions. They were uneducated. They had questions. No one had ever invited the ladies into any sort of teaching ever before. So they're sitting there going, hey, what does that mean? What do you see there? What's happening right there? And so they're talking. Let me tell you how you guys do this. Babies in the room never bother me. A mom can always bring a baby in here. I worked with middle schoolers for over 20 years. So sleeping dads bother me. But babies, babies don't bother me. So I don't even hear them. So when a mom gets really uncomfortable, I get it, but it doesn't bother me. But you know what some of you do? You do this. You go. The mom knows the baby's crying. You give her the stink eye right? That's what you do because you want the child to be quiet because the child is interrupting you listening or worshiping or being present. And if we could stop that, by the way, that would be awesome. You know, never give that to the ladies because they're working on that. But the idea here is sound and noise in the gathered assembly certainly causes a problem. So what they're saying is don't talk now. Don't ask questions now. Listen now so that everyone can listen. Everyone can hear. Everyone can learn alongside of you. And then ask the questions later after the service of the authority that's over you. Ask your husband, ask your dad. That's part of God's design. Why? Because he's pushing his men to pay attention. He's pushing his men to stay engaged, to fulfill their role spiritually, to be spiritually motivated and to lead and not relegate their God-designed roles to the women. Because let me ask you a quick question about today. Are there more guys in church today or women in church today? And why do you think that is? 
Why do you think that is? Because guys are giving up their roles and they're just going to let the ladies do it. And, and they'll just sit back and they'll either become super spiritually passive or they're going to become domineering. Peter wrote about this exact same thing. So now you've got Corinth, you've got Ephesus, you've got Galatia, you've got Pontus, you've got Cappadocia, and on and on it goes. Not just Ephesus. And if these commands were only to the women in Ephesus, you would think you wouldn't see similar admonitions elsewhere. So it doesn't seem like that works real well there. The third argument is that the worship of Artemis, which was obviously unique and special to Ephesus, as this was the official god of the city, the massive statue resided in Ephesus. So it was the, the, the hub for all things Artemis. And that somehow this culture, because of Artemis and her connection to women and fertility, had created this sort of hyper-feminized culture in Ephesus. And the argument is that Ephesus was completely different from any other city because somehow the, the worship of Artemis had led to a, a feminist revolution in Ephesus. And so Paul was speaking against a unique feminist uprising in the city. The problem with that is if that was the case, when Paul says these words, it causes a problem in Ephesus, as you would imagine. But you know who it caused the problem with? The men. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. Paul's teaching right here causes a riot. But the riot wasn't started by women. The riot was started by a man by the name of Demetrius over business issues. What was happening was he's teaching against the worship of Artemis and people stopped buying the little idols that he and the other craftsmen were making. And so a riot started. And, and it was men that started that riot. It was men that attacked Paul on behalf, not on the behalf of women, on behalf of their businesses. They, they attacked Paul because people stopped buying their stuff. And the city officials who broke up the riot were men. The crowd in the theater where they drug Paul are referred to as all men. There's not a single mention of a woman, so it doesn't make sense if this is a hyper-feminized thing because of the worship of Artemis. Paul is preaching, denouncing the worship of Artemis, and the women say nothing? That doesn't make a lot of sense. The fourth argument is that Paul was commanding now the women here not to teach doctrinal error. Like, like the, the argument is, since the women in Ephesus were unlearned and uneducated, that um, they're not allowed to speak because they don't know. They're, they don't know anything about sound doctrine. They aren't to teach because they don't know. And Paul didn't want error to spread in the church. But once the women grew in knowledge, this command would be gone because the women, right, they'd be up to speed now in doctrine. They'd be up to speed now in, in the things of the Bible. But there's a couple problems with this line of thinking. First, this text doesn't say anything about teaching error. It just says that women shouldn't teach. It doesn't say anything about women being unlearned or, or uneducated. Because previously Paul has spoken about this. He deals with doctrinal error in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3. And he's going to deal with it again in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 3. He's going to talk about false teaching there. 
And when he uses the word false teaching, or when he uses the word teaching of error, he uses a very specific word in the Greek language. He used hater didaskalao. Y'all are pushing my Greek this week, right? I'm, learning, I'm gonna go back to school again. And so that's a very specific word that, that, that means false teaching. Well, it's interesting that here, and in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul doesn't use that word for false teaching. He uses the word didaske, which is used about 100 times in your Bible. It's actually used 98 times specifically, 97 of those which are used in the positive. Only one time in all of your Bible it's used in the negative, and clearly, contextually, it's, it's speaking about something, but everywhere else it's used positively. It just means, that word just means to teach. And it is assumed in that word that the teaching will be good. It assumes that the teaching will be of sound doctrine. So this argument seems to fall apart a bit. And finally, it's curious that Paul would forbid and prohibit the women from teaching, you know, crazy town, but not say anything to the men who clearly are probably doing it too. Why not just address all of them and say, anybody who teaches, y'all better get it right. Sound doctrine matters. But that's not what he does. He does encourage Timothy specifically to watch his doctrine, but he never specifically encourages the men to not teach false doctrine. So that just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And so this brings us now to verse 12, the most contested clause, and with the most contested word in the entire book, if not in your Bible. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. This is where if you're using the NIV, it gets a little weird for you. So the NIV, the Bible, if you're using that, which I normally teach out of, is great for readability. So just so you know, some of you are going to feel really bad right now. The NIV's reading level is eighth grade. Okay? The NASB's reading level is 11th grade. King James is 12th grade. Okay, so part of it is for readability, as we've gone through life, our reading level has dropped. I'm sorry to say, but that's the truth. But right here, when you look at the NIV, the NIV is a sort of phrase-for-phrase -phrase translation. But the NASB is more of a word-for-word -word translation, or the ESV, the English Standard Version, is a word-for-word -word translation. This is what it says there. It says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And so how does a woman not being allowed to teach relate to the exercising of authority? That's the question. So how does the word authority, what limitations does that bring upon a woman? Some would say that it means you shouldn't teach false doctrine, and that you shouldn't usurp authority. But that's looking at the text grammatically from the negative position, from a position of what you should not not do. And grammatically, either both have to be negative or both have to be positive. And so based on the word choice usage here, hater didaskalato, it means that the most accurate interpretation of this would be positive, meaning a woman should not teach sound doctrine, and a woman should not exercise authority. Both interpreted positively. The most common challenge heard today to this passage is that the NIV seems to assume the negative. And that this only applies to husbands and not all men. So this only applies to husbands. We're like, why does that matter? Because some churches take this and say, then it's okay for a woman to teach as long as it's good doctrine 
And you can't assume authority unless your husband is okay with it. That's better. Like, I don't, you know, so you have to go ask your husband, and your husband goes, it's cool with me, and then it's okay. And that's a relatively recent interpretation within the last 50 or 60 years, so it doesn't seem to stick well with the scholarship of church history. Maybe some of you have heard the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, right? Everyone loves that. Did I choose God or did God choose me? That's what everyone wrestles with. We argue about that. Some of you are like, I could care less anymore. Well, there's another debate, and it's between complementarians and egalitarians. And the debate centers around gender roles in the home and in the church. So egalitarians say, we are equal and the same in all things. Complementarians say we are equal, but we are not the same. We have different functions. We have different roles, different responsibilities given to us by God because of our gender. Now, why is this a concern to our modern day? Egalitarians, if you fall in that position, you have to be very, very careful to not separate biological sex and gender and allowing for, for gender and identity fluidity. Because if we are all equal in all things, and we're the same in all things, then biological sex can be diminished, and that's not true according to God's original design. To be careful that marriage doesn't morph into something it was never supposed to be via gender or gender roles, into something that God never wanted, selfishness and pride can wreak havoc here. But in a similar way, if you're in the complementarian camp, you have to be careful to never, ever affirm domineering actions and domineering attitudes, to never affirm a difference in ability, a difference in intelligence or holiness or gifting or, or skill sets, because that's not true according to God's original design. Selfishness and pride can cause havoc here as well. Because this passage doesn't just speak to what our world wants to talk about in regards to human sexuality. The world wants to say, this is about practicality. And the Bible says, oh no, this is about your theology. And as long as I'm offending people, I might as well go all in. God does not misgender people. This speaks to original design in the fall as well. If we suggest that a biological boy could actually be a girl trapped in a boy's body, or that a biological girl could actually be a boy trapped in a girl's body, then what we've just conceded is that our God is not holy, and that violates the very definition of the attribute of the holiness of God. Our God does not make mistakes. He doesn't accidentally misgender someone. God takes sexuality and gender very, very seriously. And he has from the very beginning of your Bible. Why? Because your gender is precious to him. It's so precious. Recently, a local church suggested that God is non-binary. It was on their church sign. And they said because God demonstrates both male and female characteristics, like God is strong, God's a warrior, and so on. But he also exhibits characteristics that are feminine, like he's loving and he's kind. And that, in some way, makes God non-binary. But the problem is God wrote the code on binary. 
Like God is above that. And God, though having female characteristics, is also referred in the masculine in your Bible over 27,000 times. He's called Father 850 times in your Bible. And so when my daughter was younger and I would snuggle with her, did that make me non-binary? No, it makes me a loving father who has the capacity to show kindness because my God is a loving father who also has the capacity to show kindness. Does that make sense? And it's worth noting, by the way, that when you say something like this, and you read stuff like this in 1 Timothy, Scripture has to interpret Scripture, which means if this is indeed what this passage says, it shouldn't only say it here. So if you look at what Paul is saying through the lens of a male, godly servant leader who loves his wife and loves the women in his life like Christ loves the church and is working every day to present the women in his life as holy and radiant and pure before God, if he's doing that and the women as godly, gifted, intelligent people who are called to submit to godly authority, things begin to change. Your lens begins to shift. Because culture has defined the word submit in a non-biblical way. And they've declared submit a bad word. But the biblical word for submit in the Bible is the word hupotasso. It's a wonderful, wonderful word. Hupotasso. And this is what it means, biblically. To place yourself willingly under someone in order to help that person be all that God made them to be. How great is that definition? And I don't know what you thought de that the definition for submission was, but culture wants to throw that word out the window as demeaning to women, and I would completely disagree. And I know some of you say, well, Kevin, of course you disagree. You're a male. <laughs> right? You would say, it's a patriarchal word, and, and you're a male. And so, of course, Kevin, you're going to disagree. But I think if you'd ask the women who have delighted in living out their godly role in their marriages with a husband that is loving them like, like Christ loved the church and is working every day to present them as radiant and holy and pure, I think they would look back at you and hear them say, I praise God for the joy of living in our roles because my husband's killing it. This, he makes it easy. He makes it easy. And so, is Paul the problem? As some have suggested, like, you know, Paul, is, he's patriarchal. He's paternalistic. He's a chauvinist. And he's the one writing, so these issues really, they're just his issues, and he has girl issues. I don't think so. I wonder, what if the real issue behind it all isn't the women, and it's the men? Perhaps the men have to do some self-evaluation about our servant leadership, about our doctrine, about how well we're doing presenting the women in our lives as a radiant offering to God, holy, blameless, and pure. And fathers, are we teaching our sons to worship sports, to worship work, to worship education, to worship sex, to worship money, or whatever? Are we teaching our sons to worship Christ and showing them what it means to be godly servant leaders? Dads, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? 
Men, are you setting the pace in serving in children's ministry? Right now, in our children's ministry wing, are there more men serving or women? And why is that? How about student ministry? Do I have more men showing up in student ministries to lead these charges? Or is it, nope, the lady's got that. And on and on it goes. And the women are just begging you men to get involved anywhere. Just do anything. Just show up spiritually, even in our home. Who might really be the problem in all this? And I would argue it's the men who are no longer courageous servant leaders. It's the men who no longer accept accept responsibility. It's the men who no longer reject passivity. And it's the men who no longer work for a greater good outside of themselves. Because that's what it means to be a godly servant leader. And if you look at verse 13, Paul writes, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's just fact. That's Genesis 1 and 2. That's pre-fall. And the order of creation, by the way, does matter, not because of priority or value or worth or equality or dignity. We know that the Bible says we're equal in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ. Make sure you hear that this morning. We're all equal in Christ. But Paul does teach, Peter does teach, Jesus does teach that we're not the same. We have different roles. Not the same doesn't mean better or worse. Not the same just means different roles, and that's God's design. So like everything else in the world, when things get a little wonky, it's almost always because we are straying away from God's original design. And verse 14 says, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. And so while this is true, Adam is culpable because he went with her and was standing right there. He's standing right next to Eve. Satan's talked to her, and he's like, hmm, whatever you think. Yeah, totally culpable. But the reality is she chose her feelings over what God said, and I think that happens to all of us as well this very day. Sin is almost always feelings-driven. Temptation overriding the Word of God. But our joy and our satisfaction, our purpose and meaning come with staying in our respective lanes according to God's design, both for the male and for the female. And if all this wasn't enough, Paul finishes with verse 15 saying, but women will be preserved through childbirth. Don't hear saved. Don't hear salvation there. If they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with moderation. That's a super strange verse and people want to hear saved there because one of the, the prevailing interpretation of this passage, what they're doing is they're attaching Mary and Jesus to this passage. That's nonsense. That's absolute, there's no parallel between Jesus. And I'm the guy who loves to see Jesus on every page. That's not the page, okay? That's not, that has nothing to do, it doesn't match the overall context at all. Paul is saying, you will find your purpose, you will find your meaning and your significance, you will find your delight, not in functioning outside of but inside of God's role. And it says the ordained role is the bearing of children. So this isn't popular, but what he's saying is women have babies, men do not. That's what he's saying. What his point is, it's a stereotypical way of saying living as a biblical woman in your culture. That's what he's saying. And a biblical woman in your culture is the women have kids and the men do not. So that doesn't mean single ladies, that somehow you're outside of this. He's using a stereotype to say, you know, the normal women's stuff, and you know, the normal men's stuff. 
So look, whether you're single or you're married, you're, you're married with no kids, you're unmarried with kids, you, you, you used to have kids, or, or now you've got grandkids, or you're widowed, it doesn't matter. The point is, ladies, function inside of your lane of God's design and delight. In whatever season of life you find yourself in, and in that, celebrate now the value that comes through that. And so let me close with this. I know I'm long today. This is the longest message I've ever preached, but it's, I've never preached this text before. So here we go. So I, ask, I do ask you to forgive me. And so what does this mean practically? That's what we all want to know. So what does this actually mean? Can women lead small groups at Faith Covenant Church, even co-ed small groups? And I would argue yes. They're not teaching doctrine to the gathered assembly. It's a small group. Can women be elders in your church? I'm like, come back next week. That's what we get to do next week is look at eldership. And I want you to read it and I want you to decide. Can people like Mary Arnold... Or, or Jeannie Bowman, can they teach co-ed ministry groups? Is that okay biblically? Is that okay at Faith Covenant? And I would argue, yes, that's not the gathered assembly, and they're under the leadership of our pastors and council. Do women speak at marriage conferences here? Yes, they speak as an expert under the authority of pastors and council. Does this mean that men are smarter, better teachers, more gifted, have some special ability? Absolutely not. I, I think I could probably argue the opposite. It's a role issue. And you know what's weird about human nature? If I were to say to you right now, after this service is done, you can go anywhere you want in the church. Explore everywhere. Don't go through those double doors. Go anywhere you want. Just, just don't go through those double doors over there. You know what some of you are going to do? What's behind the double doors? What you hiding over there behind the double doors, Kevin? We're going to have to go over there and sneak peeking. That's my right. I, I give to this church. I want to see what's behind the double doors. And so in the Genesis account of creation, it says, of all the trees here, in any tree you want to, just don't eat from that one. And what do they do? They look what's behind the double doors. And just like in this passage, we have a tendency to focus on what we call the abundance of the limitation. They focus on the limitation. So I understand human nature. Ladies, when I say to you that God's design is male leadership in the home and male leadership in the church, you're like, why is that? I could do it better than him. I could do it faster than him, and I could do more things at once. And I would say, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> Absolutely. You could, get it, you could multitask everything. You could probably have five churches up and running better than the men, and you would just be you, and there's like seven of us. I think I could argue that. I think I could argue that well. But those are two roles here that we see in Scripture that certainly seem, at least, to be male only. And so I want to encourage you to consider, perhaps I need to see the abundance and not the limitation. Because the list of things you can do is not only meaningful, it's immense. And it's so immense and so important, you could fill your calendars from now until Jesus returns. So here's my heart for all of us. My prayer is that you would feel the freedom to function in your life according to God's design, to live godly lives, to defer to Christ and live according to God's design in your homes, in our church, that we would believe there's a better way to live than what's being told to us out there. That we would believe that, that the gospel, that the word of God in both word and deed is freeing, it's liberating, it's countercultural, and that your church has no desire to take one gender and put them under their thumbs and to hold them down and oppress them. That's not biblical. That's not biblical design. And so, here's my charge. Men, what do you need to do this week 
to love your wife or the ladies in your life like Christ loved the church. How about that? What do you need to do this week to love the women in your life to present them holy and radiant and pure before Christ? What do you need to do? And ladies, this week, what do you need to do in order to fully submit to your husband or father? And so, friends, if we want a gospel-centered, God-honoring, Bible-teaching and Bible-believing church, then we have to be willing to begin living some countercultural house rules.